This is Serial Killer, a true crime podcast. My name is Anne McElhenney, and I'm an investigative journalist. I've covered a lot of strange and disturbing stories in my career, from baby trafficking in Indonesia to a gruesome murder in Dublin to a child abandoned in Romania by a wealthy Canadian couple. But I've never covered a story like the case of Philadelphia's Dr. Kermit Baron Gosnell. He's America's most prolific serial killer, and you've probably never heard of him. This podcast is a story of an almost 40-year killing spree by a medical doctor who carried out his crimes in plain sight. In the previous episodes, we heard how investigators heard that Gosnell was killing patients and murdering babies. We also heard how he was carrying out his crimes in a filthy clinic where he allowed unqualified employees to give dangerous drugs to patients. And Gosnell was also a major supplier of opioids through selling fake prescriptions for drug dealers. It's also the story of how, for reasons of politics and race, those who were supposed to stop him looked the other way. Episode 5. He got away with it for decades. From 1993 up until 2000. There are so many reports by other doctors. Inadequate inspections for some of them. What is your smell practices? I can't see that. A lot of stuff, which is never Consecutive governors had stopped inspections for 16 years. He should have been shut down a long, long time ago. Time after time during the 80s, 90s and the 2000s, opportunities to stop Dr. Gosnell were missed. Most of these offences happened behind closed doors, but no one wanted to look behind those doors. However, in 1972, 37 years before the death of Karnamaya Monger and 40 years before he was arrested, Gosnell was involved in a very, very public piece of law-breaking that involved the mutilation of 11 women during abortions. It was widely reported in the media at the time and even recorded on film by a documentary crew. This would have been the perfect opportunity to stop the budding serial killer in his tracks, but it never happened. Dozens Perhaps hundreds of women and perhaps thousands of babies were to pay a terrible price for this failure. The year was 1972. Just like today, abortion was a major political issue. The Supreme Court had heard the arguments but not yet issued its Roe v. Wade decision, which practically mandated abortion in all 50 states. Before the Roe judgment came down, abortion was not illegal everywhere in the United States there was a patchwork of laws. It was legal in some states, but Illinois was one of the states where abortion was illegal. There, a group of women set up an underground network to connect women with doctors willing to carry out abortions. And it is at this time that the name of Dr. Kermit Gosnell first emerges. Detective Jim Wood, an investigator with the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, explains. He, along with another doctor, they were coming up with a procedure to do abortions in a different way. And apparently it went very wrong. Many women were mutilated. Uh, some had to get hysterectomies and they called it the Mother's Day Massacre. Yes, that's right. Kermit Gosnell was involved in an incident in 1972, which was then known as the Mother's Day Massacre. Yet he was allowed to work again for decades 
and the authorities ignored complaint after complaint that came out of his premises. That was because there was a lot of pressure from the establishment politicians and media to relax abortion laws. Mother's Day 1972, perhaps an appropriate time to note that motherhood is not what it used to be. Today we find it the center of a gathering storm as women and men argue the question of abortion, the right to life or the woman's right to choose. The Mother's Day Massacre has its origins in Chicago. This is a PBS show introducing a documentary painting perhaps a rather rosy picture of an underground organization providing abortions in a state where abortions were mostly illegal. In 1969, a group of women in Chicago decided to take matters into their own hands, setting up a hotline offering counseling and providing abortion services under the moniker Jane. The Jane organization has a legendary status among abortion activists, but at the time, the Jane leadership had to make some difficult choices. One of the main doctors they used for the illegal abortions was Harvey Carman. Just like Gosnell, he was outwardly charismatic, charming, and driven. And just like Gosnell, he said he wanted to devote his life to helping unfortunate women. He was also similar to Gosnell in that he believed it was okay to have sex with patients and to try destructive experimental techniques on women without their consent. When the two collaborated on Mother's Day, May 14, 1972, almost a dozen women were to suffer life-changing injuries. Joel Shurkin was a journalist with the Philadelphia Inquirer who spent several days interviewing Harvey Carman after the Mother's Day massacre. He remembers that Carman had other similarities with Gosnell in that he was completely unqualified for what he was doing, although at least Gosnell at one stage had studied medicine. Harvey Carman was not a doctor. He was not trained as a doctor. He claimed to be a psychologist and was not trained as a psychologist either. But he would say that he, was, he had a PhD but he had a PhD from a place in Switzerland. Now, I, I happen to have a friend who was a science writer at a newspaper in Zurich. And when I asked her about him, she sort of laughed and said it was a well-known diploma mill. He wasn't even a psychiatrist or psychologist. He was a criminal. Yeah, he was, he was violating the laws about practicing medicine without a license. He was evil, and he just, he had no business doing this. In fact, Carmen had majored in theater studies. Members of the Jane Collective were shocked as one of the group recalls in an interview in the Jane documentary. The documentary initially has a surprised tone. It was revealed to the group that our doctor was not, in fact, a doctor. People flipped out. Um, women in the group, some of them, I heard, uh, were crying and saying, we're no better than the back alleys, we've got to stop doing this. Lots of people left the group at that point. They just couldn't cope with that. As the documentary then reports, bizarrely, the leadership of the Jane Collective thought the solution to Carmen's lack of qualifications and unethical behavior was that they, who were also unqualified, should do the abortions themselves. The documentary, like those who were later supposed to stop Gosnell, doesn't question the idea of unqualified people carrying out abortions. And one woman said, well, if he can do it and he's not a doctor, then we can do it too. None of us had any medical experience, none. Not one person in this group. Meanwhile, Carmen was ready for a bigger stage. He no longer wanted to perform abortions in the shadows. Carmen saw himself as a pioneer in abortion techniques and claimed to have invented a new way of performing the procedure, 
He called it the supercoil. Invited by the Bangladeshi government and funded by Planned Parenthood, Carmen used it on women in rural Bangladesh in 1971. Carmen kept no records, but claimed it was a success. This little plastic thing, it was on springs and it was inserted and it would expand and scrape out the fetus. And he insisted that it was painless and, and more efficient than what doctors were doing. It was like a hand grenade is what it was. But Carmen didn't care. In order to keep abortion in the headlines as the Supreme Court mulled its decision, he decided to bus 15 African-American women from Chicago to Gosnell's Clinic in Philadelphia. Joel Shurkin points out that this public busing was completely unnecessary and just theatre to garner publicity. He was testing the law in that he thought he was kind of the saviour of women. And it wasn't that hard in Pennsylvania to get an abortion that was inexpensive or even, for that matter, for free. It could be done if you worked at it. <clears throat> there were clinics, I mean, all over the place. Gosnell was to provide the building and assist with the abortions, even though none of the women knew they were going to be the victims of the experimental supercoil. They also never consented to having their abortions filmed. But none of this mattered to Gosnell. Speaking from prison, he now tries to downplay his role, saying his involvement was almost accidental, in that he was just helping out an organisation. But I'm quite willing to talk about it. And my wife and I agreed to uh, provide a setting and help with the care. These patients were in Chicago. They were scheduled for an abortion, and he closed the facility. So that the organization in New York called me and said, can you provide a setting? We have Tarvi Carmen to provide these procedures. And he was famous for the second tries from California. The tool that he provided, he called it the super coil. But Gosnell can't claim that he was an innocent. As Carmen and the 15 women arrived for their abortions, word of the publicity stunt had spread through feminist networks. They knew that Carmen was not a doctor, and they also knew that Carmen was going to be using the supercoil on the women. Stories about the supercoil had come back from Bangladesh, and the feminist networks now believed, correctly, that Carmen was experimenting on women of colour for his own gratification. They reacted with fury. One of the women's groups in Philadelphia had heard about him and heard he was in town. He was extremely controversial in, in, um, in women's medicine. So that when he showed up in town, there was a whole bunch of women who were outraged that he was around. They knew who he was and what he did. Certainly did not approve of it. And I, one of them called me. And it was on Mother's Day. The protesters gathered outside Gosnell's clinic. And as it was clear the abortions were going ahead, Outraged women started banging on the windows and doors of his clinic and making threatening phone calls. One activist even phoned the district attorney's office, reporting the use of the supercoil on the women. Gosnell cannot realistically claim to have been in ignorance. Also, Joel Shurkin says the supercoil was an obvious danger to women, even if there were no women outside protesting its use. I don't care how you describe it, it sounds terrible. You don't need to be an MD to know that, that you're not supposed to do that. A device like that is, is massive overkill. And the fact that women had complications shouldn't have surprised anybody. Take my word for it, it was awful. And it was awful. I mean, just there's no precision involved in it at all. It's, it's 
It was a massive attack on a fetus. When I visited him in prison, Gosnell smiled as he remembered the protest. It seemed to be a happy memory for him. After the abortions, the women were quickly bundled on a bus back to Chicago, with the cameras rolling. Eleven women suffered horrific complications and were rushed to hospital. Three were seriously injured. One had to have a hysterectomy immediately. And at the time, Gosnell was quite a fan of the supercoil, even after its mutilating side effects became public. A media and legal frenzy erupted around the incident. That's when it started to be called the Mother's Day Massacre. There was even an investigation by the Centre for Disease Control. Defending the use of the supercoil, Gosnell issued a statement in 1972 stating, quote, it would have been irresponsible not to have carried out the abortions given the distance the Chicago women had traveled, end quote. Nowadays, Dr. Gosnell has a different memory. I was deeply offended by Harvey Carman because the, the supercoil was totally ineffective and he knew it. And so I never would have gotten involved with it. Gosnell also rewrites history in that he now says he cooperated fully with the authorities. He claims they decided to not charge him with any offences because he had not profited from the debacle. And I was questioned by the district attorney about it afterwards, but I was not charged at all. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that I provided the services uh, free of charge because I felt that these women were emotionally Gosnell fled the country, just in case there would be more questions or potential charges. Investigators believe he went to the Caribbean for several years, and indeed the grand jury reported how he boasted about going on the run to a fellow worker. When he returned, he faced no charges, and his medical licence was left unblemished. Gosnell's fellow practitioners also faced no real consequences for the Mother's Day Massacre mutilations. Harvey Carman was fined, but this was later overturned on appeal. He continued to travel extensively and kept working in the abortion industry, mostly abroad. In 1992, he retired to Santa Barbara, one of the most affluent parts of the United States. When he died in 2008, the LA Times obituary described him as someone who, quote, made a key contribution to women's reproductive health, end quote. Gosnell also suffered no consequences for his involvement in the Mother's Day Massacre. Jim Wood. You would have thought way back when, when he was messing up that bad, and apparently he fled to the Bahamas for a couple years, I guess to let the dust settle, and came back to Philadelphia and established his practice. You know, it's amazing, and I, I know I keep going back to this, that he wasn't stopped way back when. No doubt, a young Dr. Gosnell looked at what happened after the Mother's Day Massacre and learned that if he wanted to keep killing and maiming with impunity, then the best place to do it was behind the doors of a now-legal abortion clinic. As the 1970s came to an end, Gosnell was back in Philadelphia and ready to kill and keep killing. The Pennsylvania State Department of Health was at that time inspecting abortion clinics. Done properly, these inspections should have shut down Gosnell. Christine Wexler was one of the assistant district attorneys presenting evidence to the grand jury. So the grand jury looked into evidence about what people who were in positions of authority knew. 
and how this could be happening in a major city in the United States under the noses of so many people and places who knew or should have known that bad things were happening in there. So the grand jury started to look at whether or not there was official neglect. Was there any information or evidence that should have put this guy on someone's radar so that they could put a stop to it? Um, But the grand jury learned very quickly that the Department of Health was derelict in administering those inspections. In fact, they were conducting inadequate inspections for some dozen years. The grand jury described such inspections as perfunctory. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Gosnell didn't have the qualifications, the qualified staff, or the proper equipment to be doing abortions safely and legally. His building was also unsuitable for the emergency services, as the paramedics attending Mrs. Monger were later to find out. But the inspectors ignored these obvious failings. Then, as we've heard previously, when Tom Ridge was elected governor, the Republican, who wanted to show how pro-choice he was, illegally shut down even these inadequate inspections. Gosnell was then free to maim and kill at will. And Karnamaya Monger was not the first woman to die as a result of the treatment they received from Kermit Gosnell. Um, I think I'm the only one member of this house that was directly touched by the tragedy um, at the Gosnell Clinic. In the life of my 22-year-old cousin, Shamika Shaw. That's the voice of politician Margot Davidson of the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. After Gosnell was charged, she was vocal in calling for investigations into how he was allowed to keep killing. Grand jury also heard evidence that Samika Shaw died in 2001 after she suffered a botched abortion at the hands of Dr. Gosnell. She was 22 years old. The case as was required because the woman died in 2001, was reported to the State Board of Medicine. Um, The State Department's attorneys loosely considered this complaint and maintained an open file for some time. But they really, we learned that it was really absent any meaningful investigation. And it did not result in an on-site inspection at all. Had they walked in, they would have seen two flea-infested cats, filth and grime all over the place and a facility that did not even meet basic, basic cleanliness standards. And this was notwithstanding the fact that she was undergoing a routine standard procedure. But no one did any adequate or meaningful follow-up at all. So the grand jury learned that nail salons in Pennsylvania, for example, are monitored way more closely than this facility that was performing abortions. In fact, from 1993 up and until 2010, the Department of Health was derelict in administering those inspections pursuant to regulations that Pennsylvania has in place, pursuant to federal regulations. And they failed to inspect this facility even when people stood up and expressly complained. And there was a lot to inspect. There were literally dozens of complaints from a variety of staff, even vendors and healthcare professionals junior and senior, some of them very senior. There were complaints from patients. There were women arriving at hospitals mutilated. And the grand jury now knew that two women had died. However, unlike Karnamaya Monger, Samika Shaw's death did not come to the attention of Jim Wood. 
There was no curious detective willing to stick his nose in where it wasn't welcome. And so Gosnell was allowed to go on maiming and killing. Over the years, there were a myriad of complaints about Gosnell. So we learned that in 1996 and in 1997, in or about that time, Dr. Donald Schwartz, who at the time the grand jury was impaneled, was Philadelphia's health commissioner. Um, but, and prior, he had served as one of the directors of adolescent services at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, you know, a renowned institution in Philadelphia. We learned that Dr. Schwartz himself personally hand-delivered a formal complaint to the office of the Pennsylvania Secretary of Health. He had been seeing an uptick in teenage girls that had been referred to Gosnell for abortions. He kept seeing them coming back with STDs that they did not have prior to seeing Gosnell in the clinic. But he believed, because he was told from these young girls that things were inadequate, things were not clean. And so he hand-delivered a letter to the secretary, and he never got a response. So the fact that it fell on deaf ears and nothing was inspected or no, the complaint wasn't addressed was of real concern to the grand jury. And even when a whistleblower, a staff member from Gosnell's clinic, stepped up, no one bothered to investigate. In December of 2001, a former clinic worker, her name was Marcella Chung, she filed a detailed complaint to the Department of Health and the State Board of Medicine about Dr. Gosnell. So it was both about him as a provider and the facility itself. She specifically detailed that he was using unlicensed workers, including herself, to give IV anesthesia to patients. Now, she quit because she knew she didn't have the qualifications to do this. She knew she lacked appropriate instruction and supervision. She also was aware of the fact that Gosnell allowed one patient to use her cousin's insurance card to pay for an abortion. She knew it was insurance fraud was going on, too. And she knew that he was routinely performing abortions without proper consent forms. And Marcella Chung went to great lengths to fill out a report and get it to the places where it needed to be. And no one from the state, no one from the Department of State, no one from the Department of Health, reacted, responded, or performed an inspection, again, it fell on deaf ears and no one did anything, notwithstanding the fact that she was willing to stand up and speak out against him. When we started the investigation, once we found out who he was, he had 47 malpractice suits against him by that point, 46. 46 malpractice suits as of the beginning of this case. As DEA investigator Steve Doherty noticed, as we have heard previously, Gosnell seemed to have no problem violating all and every norm of acceptable medical practice. The examining rooms, you wouldn't take your dogs to get their nails clipped there. Protective padding it was under the metal frames for these women's legs. The cloth was ripped and torn, and it was bare metal that these women were putting their legs on. The equipment was rusted. Uh, there was blood on the equipment. Um, the these chairs that women were sitting in outside waiting. Uh, there was a lot of crusted blood on them. But these filthy rooms were only for a certain part of Gosnell's clientele. Now, I'm talking about how horrible the two rooms were there. They were for minority women, these filthy things. He had a very nice room in the next floor up for white women, and only white women. He knew that certain people that came to him may report him. So he would treat the white women better than the black women. And by that, it was talked about by other 
of his workers there that he put the white women in like the third floor room where there was a nice bed and a clean room. The examining rooms for white women. It had lace curtains. It had a stereo in there. The equipment was clean, well-maintained. That's where he had the white women. And he's a black man. But it doesn't really matter. But uh, he, he was horrible. His reason for that is so that the white woman wouldn't go back to the authorities and, and explain what the real deal was in his clinic. I had real concerns about that. I think that people didn't care about poor young women, black women, black girls that were in there. Um, we, we took evidence, the grand jury heard evidence that white girls were treated better and taken upstairs to a cleaner office and talked to and given lots of time and attention. And then we heard that young black girls or women of color were sat unattended for hours upon hours in filthy chairs. And the women who worked there told us regularly that, that he routinely told them, Gosnell said, that this is just the way of the world. And it was sad. Indeed, it is a very sad story. Sorrowful, bleak, and shocking. It makes me angry. At the start of this investigation, someone said there's something wrong here. In truth, there was a lot wrong. So the grand jury learned that between 2002 and 2009, Board of Medicine attorneys for the state received at least five cases involving malpractice complaints against Gosnell. And none of the assigned attorneys, none of their supervisors, suggested that the State Board of Medicine take any actions against him, even though the allegations were really severe and demonstrated that he was a deviant doctor. In fact, despite serious allegations, three of the cases were closed inexplicably and without any investigation. There were so many reports by other doctors and other people, interns that worked there, that saw these things going on that were just egregious and should have been reported. He should have been shut down a long, long time ago. They didn't have good explanations for why they ignored complaints, why they put repeated violations on the shelf and ignored it. And I mean, the grand jury and I know our team, we were not just shocked by it, we were mad about it. I mean, to say that they were irresponsible, I mean, it's an understatement. The health department knew, the Pennsylvania Department of Health knew, and a lot of people knew, but just never did anything unfortunately. But the see-no-evil attitude wasn't just in the Department of Health. It extended to other organizations across the city, state, and even nationally. NAF, the National Abortion Federation, inspects clinics before it approves providers to become part of the organization. Being endorsed as a member of NAF is a seal of approval that a clinic has appropriate standards. At some point in time, Dr. Gosnell sought a certification that you could receive by NAF, the National Abortions Federation. And the representatives from NAF came on site to take a look at it and to inspect it for their own purposes to make a judgment as to whether or not they would issue their stamp of approval on this facility. And they thought it was the worst place that they had ever seen. The worst they had ever seen? That's quite a description especially for an organization that claims on its website to be focused on helping providers, quote, deliver patient-centered evidence-based care, unquote. 
But when the NAF inspector left Dr. Gosnell's clinic, she didn't think to report the conditions. And notwithstanding that, and how appalled they were, and how concerned they were about what they observed, they did nothing. Philadelphia police also had an opportunity to stop Kermit Gosnell years before Carnemaya Monger's death. Although it was not investigated by the grand jury, I discovered that in 2007, their homicide unit received a credible complaint against Gosnell, but seemed to not even ask basic questions before closing the case. In May 2007, a man who for legal reasons I shall call Omar was concerned because he could not get in touch with his estranged wife, who was eight months pregnant with their twins. Worried, he asked Philadelphia police to do a welfare check. They reported back that she told them she had a miscarriage, but was well. Omar told me how he was grief-stricken about losing his twins so late in the pregnancy. Then his credit card bill arrived with a strange charge on it. He phoned the business and found out it was an abortion clinic. He made a complaint to the Philadelphia Police Department alleging his wife had aborted their twins at eight months. This was illegal. He says the homicide unit investigated but quickly closed the case after his wife claimed the clinic was simply performing an emergency procedure as she naturally miscarried. However, Omar is still bitter about what he claims was a shoddy investigation. He wonders why they didn't ask obvious questions, such as why did she go to the clinic and not a hospital if it was a genuine emergency? Where was the medical file? Did they even look at it? Defeated by their indifference, he went to his mosque and requested the dua, the Muslim prayer for the dead. He continued to grieve, but thought it was in the past until he received a call from us. Until we phoned him, he did not know the clinic where his twins were killed was run by Kermit Gosnell. He had heard about Gosnell on the news, but had not made the connection. Despite his name being present on police files concerning Gosnell, no one from the Philadelphia Police Department had ever thought about contacting him. I asked the Philadelphia Police Department for a response to Omar's claim of an inadequate investigation. That, if done properly, could have stopped a serial killer in his tracks. They asked for some additional details and said they would get back to me, but despite repeated reminders, failed to do so. I reached out again, and as happened so often in the case of Kermit Gosnell and his many crimes, there was no follow-up. The two consecutive governors, a Republican and a Democrat, had stopped inspections for 17 years. It really was the state's province. The state issues licenses. It's the state that can do the inspections or the unannounced inspections. It's the state that responds to complaints. So we started to bring in these administrators uh, who were responsible for the oversight. And we were shocked and appalled by just the fact that they were so cavalier and disregarded any sense of things. I mean, we heard things like, well, it was in the city. You know, we didn't want to go into the city. It was in a bad neighborhood. I, we didn't want to go back there. They allowed Dr. Gosnell at one point when there was a complaint that was looked into to meet them in the nice suburbs of Philadelphia rather than have them travel into West Philadelphia. 
This failure to inspect effectively facilitated Gosnell in his campaign of abuse and murder. You know, when you make a mistake and you make another mistake and another mistake, eventually you're going to get caught, you would think. But he made mistake after mistake and just kept going on. I think that's why, I think that's why he became so narcissistic, like, it, like he wasn't doing anything wrong. Hey, if I'm doing anything wrong, then I would have been stopped by now. Even Gosnell agrees that inspections would have been a barrier to his activities. Yes, well, that wasn't my fault that they didn't inspect me. I, I felt that I was, I like inspections because inspections tell you how to keep your standards up. They had not inspected me for 18 years. This is another example of Gosnell lying and shifting blame onto anyone except himself. A proper inspection would have seen the place closed immediately, and he knows it. Lucky for him, Pennsylvania's Department of Health and State felt his patients didn't deserve the protection of regular inspections. But Gosnell kept on harming and hurting the people he said he was protecting. He would over-medicate women he felt were difficult. And if that didn't work, he would often punch and slap women to control them when they were at their most vulnerable. I can remember times when early in the days, four people would be necessary to hold down arms and legs so that patients would not hurt themselves during surgery. And I developed a Velcro technique where I had Velcro four-inch cuffs to restrain arms and legs. He would put on that very nice tone, a quiet, soft tone. But if he got mad, he would curse and yell and smack some of the patients there to get them to conform to what he was doing with his procedures. So he, he disguises himself as this nice uh, human being that's just doing what these women want. But in reality, he was also a very angry man and controlling and mean. You know, obviously he was a monster for what he was doing. I never saw his bad side, his, the angry Dr. Gosnell, but I know people who did. Uh, there was one teenage girl who was brought into his office by a relative for an abortion, and she changed her mind at the last minute, and he had her held down and he spanked her. And so stop being a baby, something to that effect, I'm paraphrasing and they forcibly did an abortion on her. Gosnell denies this. I can remember instances where there was strong conflict in the family, and so the mother wanted abortion, the child didn't. And I referred those people to both counseling and talking, and I never performed the procedure without the patient telling me that they had come to agree with their mother's uh, position. It should be pointed out that there are no records of anyone ever receiving any counselling before their abortions at Gosnell's clinic. Staff members confirm his abuse of many patients. I spoke to Adrian Moulton, who worked there for years. Some of the women said that Gosnell was very rough with them. Was that your experience? Yeah, he was rough with them. It was when they were under and moving around and, you know, he's trying to get them to sit still. Right. Right. But as far as the workers, I don't know. I can't really say what transpired. But yes, he had his moments as far as being rough with the workers and as well as the patients. Liz Hampton grew up with Gosnell's wife, Pearl, and worked for many years in the clinic. 
Um, periodically, I would go back just to see how many were there or just be newsy. Um, I never breaked in the rooms with them. Um, after being there the second time, hearing things um, that the other co-workers would talk about, how mean he was to the patients. He would hit them. He would do this. That really made me, it's like, how could I, he he could have did it to me. Mm -hmm. He he could have hurt me. And I, I kind of knew he always had like a violent temper. He would kick holes in the wall, bang the wall, kick the wall, kick the door. Um, he had a little table. He would hit on that and break that. Gosnell's abuse included sexual harassment and affairs with his junior staff, some of whom were very young. He had everyone under control. They were Baron's little girls. Okay. All of them were his little girls. Um, when I started, I was coming down the hallway, and Baron was behind me. He came out the office and he put his hands on me and I turned around, don't you ever put your effing hands on me again. And I, I kind of knew he, you know, I actually believe he was intimate with a lot of the girls. Investigators also believe he had numerous affairs with workers at the clinic. Gosnell says this is not true, but says he had an open marriage. I deny their accusations of uh, inappropriate staff relationships. Yes, there was one. Yes, um, I, I fell in love with one of my uh, persons, but that was in keeping with my wife and my understanding. And so keeping that relationship uh, quiet was part of our agreements with our open marriage. Pearl Gosnell has since died, so she cannot confirm the claim to have had an open marriage. However, she never visited him in prison. I have no problem with any of the questions that you ask. Uh, I, my question is, is in part, uh, whether you trust me. Do you find that I'm telling you truthfully? I spoke to a patient who endured Gosnell's bullying and violence. She asked not to be named. I'll call her Mary. I woke up and then he goes, she would give her some more. And then, like, I calmed down, like, because he was hitting me, so. And where did he hit you? And wh what kind of way did he hit you? Like, on my leg, like. Like a slap? Like, not like a slap, like a beating. Oh, my God. Damn, damn, yeah. Like, hey, damn, stop kicking me. And he was like. And was he, was he using, like, his, his fist on you? Or his, or his, own? oh, my God. So after the procedure, did you com think of complaining to anyone or not? Mary believes Gosnell was maniacal and wonders how he was allowed to continue. You know what? I wonder why nobody heard because the window was open as you walk up the steps. Yeah. It's, I can't imagine that. Like, I know I woke up screaming. I know there had to be blood curling screams coming from there. And nothing could have been worse than what my experience was. And the way when he took the baby out, what he did with it and... Uh, he just, like, he just had this mad man look on his face. He was crazy. He was really crazy. Many women almost died at the hands of Dr. Kermit Gosnell. 
he would often delay calling an ambulance to avoid drawing attention to his dangerous activities. In 2006, there was a patient named Dana Haynes, and after he performed and botched her abortion, despite the fact that she was in great distress and needed help, Gosnell failed to call an ambulance for her. I talked to Dana Haynes Hello. and asked her to tell me her story. I went in for a procedure and I guess something went wrong. I was sedated, so I'm not sure what went wrong. But my family was there outside, but they wouldn't let them in. So they kept asking, um, well, is she ready yet? Several hours that went by, and they kept asking, it's like, if y'all don't let us in, and we don't see, we need to see her, because something is wrong. And they said, if y'all don't uh, let us in, if we don't see her, we're going to call the cops. That threat got Gosnell's attention. Like I said, I was um, sedated, and they said I was in a chair where I, my pants were down. I was just sitting. They just had me sitting in a chair, but I was bleeding very bad. And my family asked them, did they call the paramedics? And he said, yes, I called paramedics, but they never came. But he had never called paramedics. So I'm assuming that he was going to let me die. He was just going to let me bleed out. Gosnell claims not to remember this case, where a woman almost died in his clinic. And perhaps given how many times he injured or maimed women, he might be telling the truth. Dana, Dana, uh, now I remember the name, but I don't remember exactly the particulars to be able to answer your question. Uh, a person who had a procedure and had trouble with bleeding, apparently, and almost bled out, but did not. So um, I know that was not a person who sued me. Uh, I, I, I rarely forget a difficult case. When she went to the hospital, Ms. Haynes was told that he had left most of the fetus inside of her and that he had cut holes in her cervix and bowel. She required a large blood transfusion, and she remained hospitalized for almost five days. I believe that he was stalling. In my heart of heart, I really believe that he was going to let me bleed out. He was going to let me die, and he was going to try and cover it up in some, some kind of way. In another disturbing detail, Dana Haynes' cousin, Monique Carr, who was there that night, told investigators that Gosnell gave her a jar with the pieces of the fetus he had removed. No one had any idea that this man was kind of crazy. They told me that they weren't sure if I would be able to have any more children. So that was okay for me. But I felt as though this could happen to, you know, a younger woman that doesn't have any children. He should suffer the consequences of his actions. And I wasn't the only person this was done to. This was done to several people. You know, this was a, about money for him, I guess. Investigators discovered Gosnell owned 17 properties and had hidden a huge amount of money in his house. In the search, we recovered $243,000 in cash. He was a moneymaker. I mean, he was charging people cash to come in, and then he was selling pills on top of it. I mean, he was making money hand over fist. 
But even as the investigators and the grand jury uncovered evidence of decades of neglect and cover-up, they still found an official reluctance to investigate Gosnell for murder. After our second or third report that we submitted to the, to the homicide, we got called into uh, the DA's office. They said, why are you guys doing it? You know, you're, you're FBI and DEA, why are you doing a murder investigation? We said, we're not, we're doing a drug case. We're not keeping anything secret from you guys. Anything we find, we're giving it over to you. That's when Jason pulled out the, the print of the photograph of the, little, of the dead little baby boy. And when he laid that in front of them, they went silent. And we're gonna take this case. And they did, and they ran with it, and they did a hell of a great job. And then the DA's office started getting the homicide unit, the real homicide unit, back involved in doing the interviews too, which they did a great job interviewing those people. So the case was still being investigated. So no one bothered to visit this place for years, notwithstanding the fact that they had learned that two women had died there, that several women had been seriously hurt there, that there were minor children potentially contracting STDs there that a former clinic worker said that there was flea-infested cats vomiting in procedure rooms that a doctor was eating in and reusing single-use equipment on. And they didn't bother to walk in until the execution of a drug search and seizure warrant. The fact that they did that was abhorrent, and it was shocking to the grand jury. And they, after hearing all the testimony, were appalled that it had taken so long. And you'll see that in the, if you look up the grand jury report, you see the, the comments made by them that, you know, why did it take so long? They not only wanted Gosnell and his workers arrested, they wanted the Department of Health workers charged. They wanted anybody who was involved with looking the other way charged. The grand jury process is confidential. Our sources tell us there was a clamor in the grand jury room to charge the Department of Health staff. But in the end, no charges were laid against them. Instead, Gosnell and 10 of his employees were charged. Finally, after decades of official neglect, Gosnell's victims were to get their day in court. In the next episode, putting Gosnell on trial. Serial Killer, a true crime podcast, is a production of the Unreported Story Society. To learn more about the crimes of Dr. Kermit Gosnell, you could read my book, Gosnell, The Untold Story of America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. It's co-written with Phelan McAleer. I'm Anne McElhenney. This podcast was produced by Phelan McAleer. Magda Segata was executive producer, and it was edited by Peter Kelly. To get the next episode of Serial Killer, please subscribe for free on your podcast app and sign up for our email list at SerialKillerPod.com.